0: Today's reading is Psalm 27, found on page 557 in the, you know. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we count it. A great privilege, Lord, to be able to speak to you in prayer. We count it an even more incredible privilege that you speak to us through your word. Teach us, open our eyes, give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the one thing that you want more than anything in all the world? Uh, what if you could have absolutely anything? What would it be? Think of all the dreams, uh, all the desires and ambitions uh, that you've ever had, all the times that you've maybe said to yourself, if only. What's the one thing that would eclipse everything else? It's, yeah, it's probably true that we, we're not sure Quite how to answer that. Maybe many things come to us, but we learn from Psalm 27 that there, there is an answer. There is an objective reality. There is something that is most supremely excellent, uh, most satisfying, a most delightful reality against which everything else is, is really uh, nothing in comparison. And it's the thing we were made for. And it's verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to seek him in his temple. For David, uh, that is his absolute preoccupation and passion. He does have other things that he asks for. Uh, Certainly in the second half of this psalm from verse 7, he makes a number of petitions uh, to God. Really, I think they're all subsidiaries of of his one overall desire that he spells out in verse 4. And we'll come to it. But before we do, let's just step back a wee bit, give a bit of context. Uh, this psalm was written amid suffering, and first point uh, this evening is is that David suffered, and so will we. It's not the it's not the big idea of the passage, uh, but but it's an important context. David suffered, so will we. I think that what David was going through makes the content of his prayer all the more striking. Uh, I'm not sure I would have prayed like this. If I'd been in his shoes, and while we're not totally sure what was going on with him when he wrote this uh, psalm, uh, we we get the idea when you look at verse 2. He talks about evil men who advance against him to devour his flesh. He talks about his enemies and foes, even an army that besieges him in verse 3. And war that breaks out against him. Further down in verse 5, he speaks of the day of trouble. Verse 6, enemies who surround him. Verse 10, though my father and my mother forsake me, he says. There's a harrowing thought. In verse 11, he, he speaks of his oppressors. And in verse 12, his foes... And false witnesses who rise up against him and breathing out violence. That's pretty intense. I mean, I'm, you know, what was going on, not sure, but this was intense. David is suffering. Maybe he was on the run from King Saul, who wanted to kill him, and we've read stories about that. Maybe it was, and I think more likely, when it was when his own son Absalom. Uh, betrayed him and staged a coup. In one sense, it doesn't really matter uh, what the situation was. The point is that in the midst of his heartache and pain and distress, he seems to have found this clarity of mind and focus. Uh, Do you ever find that? You know, I don't think David was the first or the last. Maybe God takes you through some really terrible uh, times and in the pain of it all, you begin to see the one thing that, that really matters, where hope really lies. And, and I know suffering doesn't always have that effect. Uh, sometimes it might send a person into a tailspin, uh, and they're so completely overwhelmed and confused and just feel lost. And I, I think that's pretty normal. But other times, I think we've probably heard the kind of story, haven't we, Life was, you know, life was good, all was well. I was really ambitious and uh, living for work. And then (sniffs) tragedy struck. And I realized the one thing that really matters more than anything else in the world. Sometimes our lives are so shaken up that it can lead to a complete reassessment of, of what we're living for and what we're trusting in. That's not always necessarily a good thing because sometimes people still come to all sorts of wrong conclusions and bad choices. But in Psalm 27, we see that David, in his suffering, saw the truth about what had to be his number one goal. And the question is, do we or will we whenever suffering comes? Because it will come. People are often surprised, aren't they? We are often surprised. Uh, We see other people suffer and uh, somehow think it'll never be us, whether it's sudden bereavement or terminal illness, false and devastating accusations, or maybe going from boom to bust. A number of people I know like that. um, Maybe betrayal at home, infidelity, bullying. Uh, children going completely off the rails like you know between those and 101 other uh, really tragic situations people suffer everybody everybody suffers at some point in some ways and of course some worse than others and it's never identical in any, any two situations and yet it is a universal thing you know the reality of hurt and pain and, and shock and grief it is something that, to some extent, in some ways, is sadly going to come to everybody. And if it hasn't already, it, it, it's going to. Peter says, the Apostle Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. It's terrible, it's horrible, it's perplexing, it's maybe horrific, but it's not strange. Sadly, it's all too common and it's to be expected and scripture is really clear about that. The question is, what do we preach to ourselves when suffering comes? American pastor and author, uh, Paul Tripp, whom I'm sure many of you have have read, he, he says that when suffering comes, you'll always preach some kind of gospel to yourself. Everyone does, like believer, unbeliever, religious, irreligious. Everybody tries to make sense out of life. And therefore, everybody will lay hold of something and preach something to themselves, which will give themselves solace. So here's, here's the second thing I want to say. First of all, David suffered, and so will we. But ask yourself, who or what shall I fear if God is for me? Who or what will I fear if God is for me? Look at verse 1. Here's how David preaches to himself. How does he begin? He doesn't begin with his troubles, does he? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Note I want to zoom in here, right? In verse 1, David uses three particular words to speak about the Lord. Do you see them? In verse 1, light, salvation, and stronghold. I want to zone in on those for a moment. What does it mean for the Lord to be described as light? Quite a lot. Uh, for one thing, light Speaks of him being radiant in his perfection. He's holy, holy, holy. The darkness of evil cannot abide in his presence. Uh, It flees before him because he is light. Like what happens when you turn on the light switch at home? What happens to the darkness when you turn on the light switch? The darkness cannot stay. It has to go. God is light. He's altogether righteous. He's completely just. Abundant in goodness and truth. 1 John Chapter 1, verse 5 says, God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. And light, therefore, means that he's the ultimate glory, infinite in being. And it means that he is life in himself. He's not derived from another. He is light. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. He's incomprehensible. He's almighty. And for God to be light, I think also it means that he's all-knowing. Because if you wanna hide, in the, you, know, you, you hide in the darkness, don't you? Because you, you don't wanna be seen, nothing is hidden in the light. Well, God is light and he sees everything and he knows everything. And yet even though he knows the worst about you and me, we get to live in the light of the warmth of his steadfast covenant love. This is who God is. Absolutely, utterly, supremely spectacular in all that he is. So that's the first word. What about salvation? What does that mean? I'll be much briefer on this. God is the one who alone can deliver us from evil, both in here and also out there. He alone can rescue from sin and death and hell. And the third word is stronghold, meaning that, God is a refuge, a hiding place, like a fortress on a hill. If you want to be protected from the evil one and where he wants to take you, then you need God to be your stronghold, to hide you in the shelter of his tabernacle and set you high upon a rock, verse 5. So there's three words, right? Light, salvation, stronghold. But actually, David does not say, David does not say, the Lord is light. The Lord is light. Is salvation the Lord is the stronghold of life? I've left a word out, haven't I? And and Paul Tripp draws this out. Really simple observation. David says the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. And we need to see here that who the Lord is, it's is, is not an abstract impersonal set of beliefs. On the contrary, the Lord is everything to David. And to quote uh, Paul Tripp, again, he said, Theology properly understood doesn't just define God, it redefines me as a child of God. Recently in our church, I preached about baptism, how God has set apart a part of people for himself who will know and trust and follow Jesus as their light, their salvation, the stronghold of their life. But we know, and this is true like in any tradition of the church that you're in, we know that baptism does not guarantee that that is how people are going to live, does it? We know that the New Testament has... Sad examples of of people who who were baptized, they were part of his church, they had the theology that God is light, God is salvation, God is stronghold, yet they ultimately left it behind. The personal testimony of verse 1 may have been on their lips, but it was never truly theirs. How tragic that is. See, in the Old Testament, Israel had the Old Testament sign of God's covenant grace in circumcision, as it was in those days before the coming of Christ. Yet many chose not to live by faith. And Paul writes in Romans 2, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, externally, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, Paul says. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. What I'm trying to say here is that verse 1 needs to be real. For, for me and for you personally. As a community of the baptized, verse one is what God wants for us, isn't it? Verse one ought to define every day of our lives, what we live for, the whole point and purpose of life. It, this is what gets David up in the morning. It's what drives him and enables him to face the very worst trials of life. Isn't it so different to be able to say the lord is light for me i mean his his mercy and grace lights up my life and he shows me how to live his word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path the lord is salvation for me you know he is the resurrection and the life for me he is the stronghold of my life he is my refuge when the day of judgment comes, and He's my rock, whatever I face in this life. Uh, Paul talks about our lives being hidden with Christ in God, Colossians three, verse three. Went, to know that, you know, to know that everything that God is, that He is for me, you know, let that be your testimony this day, and let, let let's pray that for each other that. That it'll be real, that it'll be personal, that we'll relate to God as our own light and salvation and stronghold. We need to take that into our suffering. To say with Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so David rightly says, Whom shall I fear? You know, of whom shall I be afraid? So look, David suffered and so were we. Ask yourself, here, what shall I fear if God is for me? And then let's pray that we might long for the one thing that really matters. That our eyes may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord that we'll be so taken, so captivated by all that he is This is verse four, okay? This is the big idea. Surely this is the big idea of this passage. And it it talks about a where and a what, where he wants to be all the days of his life and what he wants to do there. I'm going to say quite a bit about the where. It relates to the, the what, but where does David want to be? One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Described also in verse 4 as the Lord's temple, his dwelling, verse 5, and his tabernacle, verse 5 and again in verse 6. Now here, here's a guy, think about David's context, his situation. Here's a guy who was king of Israel, was banished from his own country and denied access to his own house. Second Samuel 15 and following, you can read about all, all that uh, with the fallout with Absalom and all of that. Now, where would you want to be? Where would, if you were in David's shoes, where would you want to be? For David, his chief desire is not simply to get back home again into the, you know, back to the comfort that he had before. That, that's not what he's after. It's not power that he, he wants back to be back in the seat of power. It's not all the pleasures that he had before that he, he wants to get back to. No, having, having had everything, everything stripped away uh, in terms of what the world values, David now has this, this clarity of mind. The place he longs to be more than anywhere else is in the house of the Lord. He wants to be with the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord, to have communion with the Lord so that he might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now as Christians, we don't have any building uh, called a temple. But in David's day, there was a temple, or or at least it was a movable temple. It was a sacred tent known as a tabernacle. And in that sacred tent, God kind of took up residence. Even though he is, of course, the you know, he's the uncontainable, omnipresent God, right? We've got to keep that in mind. For the living God, not even, not even the whole cosmos uh, can contain him. He's, he's transcendent over everything that is. So what does David mean then by wanting to be in the house of the Lord? He, he's simply saying that he longs to be in the place where the God who is everywhere nevertheless dwells among his people in a special way. And God had chosen the tabernacle as the place where he should be worshipped. The place where his people should come and meet with him in a special way. And God did really presence himself in a special way among his people. And there was a beauty in that. The tabernacle itself was probably a dusty old tent. Nothing spectacular about the actual tent. But David knew that at the tabernacle, he would get to know God more. Not hiking up a mountain or walking by a river or singing in the meadow. I think a lot of people think that's all we need, right? But David knows otherwise. Of course, yes, God is up the mountain and by the river and in the meadow, of course. And yes, all creation proclaims that he is transcendent and all-powerful. And yes, it does your soul good to be out there and to be... Eyes open. But David knew that if you want to know and experience the beauty of God in the fullness of His grace and mercy, and in the fullness of His love and direction for your life, you need to come and worship Him. You need times like this on the Lord's day that is set apart so that we can rest and so that we can worship together. Not off on your own, doing something in your own way but with the Lord's people and in the way that God has ordained for us to worship him together. Now, we don't have a tabernacle anymore. Uh, We don't have a temple. Those things were temporary. But what did John say when he wrote the gospel? John chapter one. What did he say about Jesus? You know what we sing every Christmas in our carol services? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, or to put it another way, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus, in a very real sense, is the temple of the living God. He is God in the flesh. And so for you and me, if we want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, because that's the what, isn't it? We talked about the where, but that's the what. What David wants to do more than anything in the world is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that means that when we come together, to worship. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus who tabernacled among us. And it's even more amazing because, think about this, not only did he live for us a perfect life, not only he died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to pay for our sin, that's what the old sacrificial system in the tabernacle pointed forward to, And he not only rose again to give us victory over death, and he not only ascended into heaven, where he now intercedes for us at the right hand of God, but also his presence is with his people right now by the Spirit who dwells in you as believers, Paul says in Romans 8. In other words, that makes us, a tabernacle for the living God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that when we come together to worship as a church family, in a sense we're like living stones that, uh, that are part of God's temple and God is building us together into a spiritual house, a temple in which we worship. Not the building that's a temple, but rather the family of believers who come together for worship. It's, it's such a rich theme in the Bible, the whole, the whole theme of temple, and even at the end of the Bible, you think about how it all ends when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns. We read that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us and be our God forever. In perfect communion where sin and death will be no more. Really, that's where David wants to be ultimately, isn't it? Ultimately, he wants to be in that, that final state where communion will be completely uncompromised by sin. It's where you and I want to be ultimately. is to be able to, we were singing it earlier, to be able to to see Jesus face to face, because there forever and ever, we will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and he will be our absolute delight and pleasure and joy and satisfaction through all eternity. But here's the thing, it's gotta begin now. I mean, yes, there's a not yet, we're looking forward, but it begins now. David knows that nothing else will satisfy right now. That nothing else in this life is going to delight him and give him the pleasure, like the pleasure of knowing Jesus right now as we prioritize coming together to worship him, coming together to know this will be our prayer. One thing. This, is, this has got to dominate my life. This has got to be the thing I Put first front and center one thing to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord I want I need my heart I need my heart to be warmed to be I need my mind to be renewed I need the scales to fall off I need my ears deaf ears to be unstopped I need my eyes to see and I need the family of believers to help with that as we come together week after week to sit under his word that we might see Jesus. May we delight in him because of who he is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for reminding us that David suffered and so will we. But here, what shall we fear, Lord, if you are with us? Help us to preach this to ourselves. And we pray that we might long for the one thing that really matters, that our eyes may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Please open our eyes again today to see your beauty. We love you. We want to love you more. So please carry on to completion the good work that you've begun in us. Grant us a closer walk with you this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.